Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome Jeff Bluestone, CEO of Sonoma Biotherapeutics and Professor Emeritus at UCSF to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us, Jeff. Happy to be here. Jeff, if we can kick things off and you're on the clock for us, uh, could you share a bit more about your background and career overview with our audience? Sure. So I was in academia for over 40 years, I trained at uh, Cornell Weill Medical School in the Sloan Kettering division went on to the National Cancer Institute, where I established my own laboratory, actually working in immune tolerance and organ transplantation, then went on to University of Chicago to head up the Ben May Institute for Cancer Research, again, working on immune tolerance, but now in cancer and trying to break it, also started a pretty focused effort in autoimmune disease treatment as well, and understanding the basic biology there, and then finally landed um, about 22 years ago at, at UCSF to head up the diabetes program there and really focus my efforts uh, largely on the population of cells that I s- study to this day, regulatory T cells or Tregs, to try to control immune activity. For the last three years, I've been at Sonoma Biotherapeutics, which is a company that I founded along with my colleagues, really are focused on developing cell therapies using Tregs to treat autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. Fantastic, Jeff. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today, and thanks again for joining us. Uh, We'd love if you can kind of connect that overview with our audience here and share a grasp of some of your experiences and kind of how they connect. What's your North Star, uh, the common thread, if you will, that's been tying your work together over the years? Yeah, so um, uh, I, I would say I have a constellation, uh, not a single star. Uh, I love it. I love my life, it's always been about the science and, and really doing kick-ass science and really understanding the basic tenets of immune regulation and immune tolerance. But along with that, two other things have driven me. One is collaboration, not something that you hear about all the time in academia, but for me, The idea of building community through collaborative research has been a very important part of the work that I've done, the organizations I've led and built. And then finally, even though I'm a PhD basic scientist, I've always had a real commitment to uh, making a difference in people's lives. And so you'll see peppered throughout my, my research effort is really developing therapies that I've worked hard to try to get to patients to see if we can uh, change the course of their disease. Fantastic. And I'll pass off to Chris now to dive into our first topic here, integrating and applying the immune system. Thank you, Chaz. And thank you, Jeff, for joining us. That's exciting to hear more about your work and what drives you. And building on that, it's often been said that the key to changing the world is first understanding what problems to solve. And your research, as you mentioned, over the past four decades has focused on understanding the basic processes that control T-cell activation and immune tolerance and autoimmunity, cancer, organ transplantation. Taking a step back for a moment, what led you to select, uh, shall we say, immunology as your area of focus? Yeah, I came about it a little bit serendipitously, but quickly turned to to a focus. I was uh, an undergrad at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and actually was in a master's program in virology and got interested in some of the science of cancer. And so got a summer gig at the Sloan Kettering Institute where Robert Good, who was a father of a lot of immunology, having discovered B cells and where they develop, uh, discovering what was going on in the bubble boy, which you may remember, which was an immunodeficiency in T cells. And when I got to Sloan Kettering, I appreciated that there were 200 people in a cancer institute working on the immune system. 
And it became obvious that the immune system was just involved in every disease you could imagine, from heart disease to cancer, to obviously immunological diseases, autoimmune diseases. And I just got really blown away by the opportunity to affect so many different diseases, if one could really understand the immune system and, and how it worked. And then when thinking about what does that mean in real life, you have to make decisions when something is that broad, right? And so I decided immune tolerance was going to be my field, how to establish it and how to break it. How do you actually understand what's going on in the immune system to, that allows it to recognize viruses, bacteria, parasites, and yet not attack one's own tissue routinely. And it was that sort of focus on immune tolerance, which really drove as, and has driven all of my research over the next four decades. So with that context and taking a step forward, as you mentioned, during your time at the University of Chicago, your lab completed the foundational work uh, that identified and led to the development of the first FDA approved immune checkpoint inhibitor for metastatic melanoma opening the way more broadly for the field of immunotherapy. As we think about this understanding of the immune system and its application, can you tell us more? We'd love to hear the story in your own words. Sure. Like a lot of things in science, uh, it's about serendipity and a graduate student that didn't know any better. And that was true in this case as well. I, as I've already alluded to, was very interested in immune tolerance and, and how the T cell gets triggered. We had done early work in looking at the T cell receptor, had developed a drug against the component of the T cell receptor, an anti-CD3 antibody, which I hope in the next couple of weeks will actually be approved by the FDA. But in the course of that, those studies with that drug, we came to appreciate that T cells require more than one signal to get effectively activated. And through work that was done by others in, in like Craig Thompson and Mark Jenkins and Carl June, learned that CD28 was really an important, what we call co-stimulatory molecule. So if T cells were going to get activated, they needed both a signal through the T cell receptor and then a second signal through CD28. So for me, this became a logical and appropriate area of research. Could I figure out a way to inhibit CD28 so that even though a T cell might get its first signal, that by blocking the second signal, you would get tolerance and the immune system wouldn't function well. And so working with a group in Seattle, at Bristol, ultimately Bristol-Myers Squibb, developed a soluble molecule called CTLA-4IG, which blocked the CD28 co-stimulatory pathway using this molecule CTLA-4, which was a highly homologous protein uh, to CD28, 50 plus percent homologous, and was able to bind to the same ligands as CD28, so became the perfect antagonist for the CD28 pathway. Well, perhaps not surprising, the field was very much poised to think about CTLA-4 as a, as a second level CD28, that if CD28 is an important co-stimulatory molecule, CTLA-4 must play the same role. And so I put a graduate student on the project, Teresa Walunas, and I asked her to look at the role of CTLA-4 in our cells. And we used to do experiments in a, in a maybe in a bit of an overkill, which is that we made antibodies to CTLA-4. We worked with another group on a knockout of the CTLA-4 gene and started to get to work on it. And, the, and Teresa came back to me after a year and making the antibody and using it to, to block T cell responses and said, she didn't understand the result. What do you mean you didn't understand the result? She said, well, you told me it was gonna be a co-stimulator, but when I put the antibody into culture, the cells responded better, but they responded better whether or not the antibody cross-linked like a co-stimulator would. And so it looked like I was blocking an off signal rather than turning on an on signal. I said go back to the experiments again. That's what mentors often do because they're sure that their idea is the right one. She came back again and said, no, 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 no. This, this blocking CTLA-4 turns a T-cell on. It does not turn a T-cell off like CD28 does. And really that paper was for the first time showed that there were membrane-bound proteins that were not just 
post-stimulatory proteins to turn cells on, but there was actually a whole class of proteins that were designed to turn cells off. And about a year later, Jim Allison showed that in fact, in a cancer model, by treating with anti-CTLA-4 and blocking CTLA-4, you actually cause tumors to go away. And that was really the impetus for what became Nobel Prize for him. He deserves it very importantly, but really showed for the first time that we could develop therapies that would release the brakes on a cell and turn on the immune system. It's always thrilling to hear how from the basic research and from almost serendipity in recognizing that biology doesn't work the way we always think it will, we're able to have such a significant impact uh, for patients. Thank you for sharing that story, Jeff. And continuing in that vein and transitioning uh, to today, you've had a longstanding interest in antigen recognition by T-cells, as was just highlighted, including Tregs, as you mentioned earlier. And so if we're to summarize, your focus is, has been on that T-cell recognition, going from CD28 to CTLA4 to IL-2R to TCRs, and now to CAR Tregs that build and bring together the insights of your research career. So as we think about these regulatory T-cells and the role they have in regulating self-tolerance and suppressing immune responses, and how with the loss of Treg function, patients can suffer uh, everything from autoimmune conditions to um, broader immune tolerance challenges. Can you tell us more about your current work and its intended translation? Yeah, sure. Um, again, in another, in another case of some serendipity, when we discovered the importance of CTLA-4 as a negative regulator, uh, we assumed that its activity was going to be on the effector T cells that destroy tumor tissues. And in fact, there was, you know, good evidence that the effector cells did express CTLA-4. But when we started to look genetically at what was the major effect of eliminating CTLA-4, it turned out it was not only on the effector cells, but that there was this indeed small population of cells, regulatory T cells, that depended very much on CTLA-4 for their function. So they were not just a, a checkpoint protein like CTLA-4, they were a checkpoint cell. They really went around the body monitoring for breakdown in self-tolerance and shutting that breakdown back down. And so it really didn't take long for us, somewhere around 2000, to really come to appreciate that if we could come up with a way of engaging Tregs and expanding Tregs, that we would be able to have a potential therapeutic. So the first approach, which is, of course, the logical approach at the time, was to try to develop a biologic that could do it. And it turned out that Tregs express a lot of the growth fractor receptor, IL-2 receptor. And we thought, okay, if you give enough IL-2, you should be able to expand those Tregs both in culture, but more importantly, in disease settings and expand Tregs. And that has actually led to a, a whole field now of trying to develop IL-2 um, biologics. The challenge has been that the IL-2 receptor is expressed both on Tregs and on effector cells. And it had been approved actually to treat cancer by activating effector cells. And so we ended up in this setting in which trying to figure out a way to use that biologic to activate effect uh, Tregs without it activating effector cells turns out to be quite challenging. And there are a dozen companies now that are all trying to make mutated forms of IL-2 that will only activate one and, and not the other cell type. So we decided that we might as well uh, move beyond the biologic and think, well, why don't we just work with the cells directly? We could modify them so they become more sensitive to IL-2. We could select them so that they would recognize the antigens we wanted to. And we could build on the biology insights that we've had about CTLA-4 expression, for instance, and really be able to, to work with the actual cell itself. Now, this is not a, for the uh, weak-hearted, cell therapy was a new field at the time. In fact, I had started a company with Craig Thompson and Carl June back in the 90s to try to use cell therapy in cancer. For, these were effector cells, and that company didn't do so well. Um, and so getting into the cell therapy space, I knew almost immediately was going to be a, a challenge. 
But it was even more of a challenge because we weren't working in the same space everybody else was, which was cancer, where you made effector cells with cars and those would destroy the cancers. And CD19 CAR T was now just becoming clinically enabled and testing it out. But nonetheless, we decided to take the to, to take the challenge. And starting in about 2004, started developing Tregs as therapeutics. And initially worked with unmanipulated polyclonal Tregs, did a lot of preclinical experiments to show that they could have an effect in diseases like type 1 diabetes, mouse models of type 1 diabetes, lupus, organ transplant, and then moved it into the clinic so that by 2008, we had developed a technology that allowed us to isolate those cells with very high purity because you couldn't afford to have any effector cells in there. They had to be really all Tregs, grow those cells because you didn't get a lot of them out of the peripheral blood, and then put them back into patients and monitor the effects of that. And, and that work at UCSF has been continued to this day by Kishi Tong, who I started the programs with and really has looked at these polyclonal Tregs in everything from kidney and, and liver transplantation to autoimmune diabetes, lupus, and pemphigus. And so it was really a great proof of principle that Treg cell therapy could be impactful in these patients. The challenge was that Tregs have an enormously diverse repertoire. If, if you look at the T-cell receptor usage on a Treg, there are millions of receptors that are used, and therefore the ability to target a single protein with a Treg is hard to predict given the diversity of the cells. So that led down this path of developing an antigen-specific Treg that would target an antigen present in the site of a particular disease. And because of the data coming out of the cancer space using chimeric antigen receptors, CARs, we thought this would be a logical approach. And so we have been developing CAR Tregs now for about six years, the last three in Sonoma Biotherapeutics, the company I started based on the work at UCSF and have been focused on developing CARs that will recognize novel proteins or overexpressed proteins in the site of disease. And that's been really very uh, rewarding as we've really been able to move this field forward with these antigen-specific Treg populations. And a phenomenal amount of work it has been. We'll be excited to dive more deeply into Sonoma in a moment. But before we get there, as we still continue to talk about this field, and you've highlighted some of this already, we'd love to understand what challenges uh, CAR Tregs specifically have to overcome and where you think uh, the field is going to ensure not only successful scientific clinical uh, translation, but also patient access, which is often so challenging as we think about cell therapies. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that's, that's the what keeps me up at night question. I, I really think that the, that the challenges um, are first and foremost the science. Does does our hypothesis, and of course, we're not the only ones in the world, uh, there are now a number of other T-Reg companies, does our hypothesis that we can develop a curative therapy because it's a living therapy that would only have to be given once or a couple of times that will change the existing standard of care? If you ask what changed the existing standard of care in the development of checkpoint inhibitors like CTLA-4, when you look back at that data, not, not everybody was cured by that drug. What happened was, is that instead of trying to just extend the life of a cancer patient, all of a sudden there were 10% of those patients that lived 10 years and showed no sign of disease. And so what I think the difference between a treatment and a cure is, is being able to develop something that will actually be um, able to put, in this case, patients into remission permanently, not just temporarily like some of the current immunotherapies do in diseases like RA. And so the way we look at, at CAR Tregs is being able to change the standard of care by actually creating curative medicines. 
Now it's not going to be 100% of the people right away. It may only be 10%. But once we change that paradigm from chronic treatment for the rest of your life to a substantial number of patients that are actually drug-free, then we can figure out how to use combination therapies and other approaches to enhance and raise that bar for those patients that we have given long-term cures. And so I believe that what overcomes existing standard of care is a different kind of drug. And I think CAR Tregs holds the promise for that. Now, what are the challenges? CAR Treg therapy is not cheap. All cell therapies are expensive and CAR Tregs are no different. In some diseases like type 1 diabetes, when the other treatments are insulin or the like, you know, you're talking about a pretty big financial impact. And so um, we think in diseases like RA, where people are spending $40,000, $50,000 a year on TNF inhibitors, there the economics makes sense. But we have to change the economics over time if we really want patient access. And so that means making therapies that are more efficient, automated, eventually getting to a cell therapy that is what we call off the shelf, which means that instead of making one drug for one patient, we can make one drug for a thousand patients because we can grow up these cells from a healthy individual, manipulate it in a way that it won't get rejected after we put it into an individual who's of a different genetic type and have those cells survive just as long as the autologous cells. So we need to bring down costs. We need to make it more efficient and automated. And we need to think way down in the future now about can we create CAR Tregs by taking advantage of the Tregs that are already in the bottom body and using gene therapy to actually selectively and specifically introduce the CAR or whatever specificity into the endogenous cells. So like the mRNA vaccines have been doing and changing the way we think about vaccines so that we can use that kind of in vivo approach to doing it. So there's a lot of opportunities. We're, we're really at the end of the beginning here. And I think that whenever you're in a new science and whenever you're trying to develop a new kind of therapy, I remember going back a little anecdote. I remember 1981 being at J&J when they were talking about the first monoclonal antibody that had been approved by the FDA, a drug called OKT3. And uh, CSO got up and said, we're discontinuing our antibody discovery program. Why? Biologics antibodies are too expensive and too hard to make. We're going back to small molecules. And that's where we always sell therapy now. There are a lot of people thinks, think that they're too complicated, too expensive, too hard to make. But I'm hoping that in the next decade or two, we're going to look back at where we are now and really believe that that this kind of treatment is not only feasible, but it's actually going to be quite durable and quite, I hope, successful in treating people. A sentiment I think we're similarly excited to share and hopefully help bring forward. And it's only through companies that are doing such innovative work like yourself that these new modalities, these living therapeutics, are really going to be able to impact patients' lives uh, in the picture you paint. So we're big fans and we're keeping our fingers crossed as well for the science and its translation. As we, as we think about this further and broaden the scope a bit, uh, we'd love to hear what else you're excited by and what you see as soon to come in the realm of immunoengineering. Yeah. One, one of the great things about cell therapy is it's a, it's a little bit like a Trojan horse, right? You can put stuff inside that can really change not just the, the ability of the cell to do what you want it to do, but the ability of the cell to do things that, that basically you'd love it to do, but it doesn't do currently. So we can imagine a future in which our Tregs will not just deliver the immunosuppressive local activities that we would like it to have, but perhaps make additional tissue repair factors or tissue uh, growth factors so that when you get into that site and you make those molecules, you see that neurons get repaired or joint tissue gets repaired. So you can imagine payloads can be introduced in these cells that would change not just the autoimmune nature of the disease, but the destructive 
nature of the disease itself. You can imagine engineering these cells so not only will they have a receptor that sees a target at the site, but it can be directed specifically to that site by using chemokine receptors and other modifications. You can imagine a scenario where you can change these cells so that they will have a broad activity among diseases because of this off-the-shelf nature to it. So I think that, that the biggest problem we have is not the opportunities. It's it's how do we decide what the, what not to pursue because there are indeed so many opportunities out there to pursue. And then I've already mentioned, you know, how immune engineering, whether it be through gene therapy or cell-based gene therapy, that immune engineering is going to, I think, become a way to treat diseases that today you wouldn't think you would treat with immune modulation, like stroke like ALS, like heart disease. And I think we're not that far away from being able to think about diseases where immune inflammation, obesity, plays such a large role that if we could introduce these kinds of regulatory cells and pathways into those tissues, we could have a big impact beyond the, quote, classic autoimmune or immune-mediated diseases. That's an exciting application, and I'm looking forward to the continued development, I think, just as you are, of putting these ideas into practice. And as we think about that, and as as you've mentioned, you currently serve as president and CEO of Sonoma Biotherapeutics, a company that's, as mentioned, again, leveraging the properties of Tregs to create living cell therapies and restore the immune system back to its balanced and ideally fully functional state. Taking a pause to dive into that for a moment, what drove your pivot from academia and oversight of research institutes such as uh, the PICI into industry? Yeah. So there's sort of two two answers to that question. First is the more global, my personality and my career. And then the second is the precipitating event. Why don't I start with the precipitating event, and then I'll talk about how I got there. So I was running PICE, the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. And one of the great things about about PICE was we had these biannual retreats where we bring in great scientists from all over the country that we support and have a a series of both scientific as well as um, talks from a variety of experts that impact on our field. And at the, at one of the retreats, I had a panel of venture capitalists that I had come and join us because one of the models for Pisces were to help our investigators found and start companies. Sean Parker, who started the Parker Institute, put some funding together to help us do that. And I thought the VCs would be great in helping the investigators learn about what it takes to build a company. So although most of them are far more um, knowledgeable than I was at the time. So um, we had this panel discussion and one of the VCs was asked the question, so you invest in both tech and biotech. What's the biggest difference between tech and biotech? And at that point, you know, my I'm sitting there thinking, okay, he's going to say something about the type of science or the type of uh, organizational structure. He said, oh, no, there's really there's only one real difference between the two. So when a tech company starts, the founder of that company always goes into the company to make sure that their idea is executed on. When biotech companies start, the founders often don't go, usually don't go into the company. They stay in there cushy, tenured faculty positions. And um, and then they complain a couple of years later when the company's not doing what they wanted them to do. So that night I went back to my wife and I said, you know, if I'm going to get this company up and running, I'm going to have to make sure that, that I take the risk. And so it was that day that I told the folks at UCSF that I was going to be leaving and, and starting the company. So the, the the second part of the question, so how do I get there, right? So I have been working, you probably appreciate, for most of my career at the very basic science level up through early, very early proof of principle or concept. The idea being that I could take the science that was being developed in the laboratory and hopefully 
help others in thinking about how to how to make those into drugs and then maybe play a small role in testing it out in early clinical trials. I was able to do that in a number of really cool opportunities I had. I started something called the Immune Tolerance Network, where it was collaborations with industry to bring their drugs into immune diseases like autoimmune disease, transplant, allergy, and asthma. It was the Pisces, the Parker Institute, where I was able to help investigators see their successes by starting companies and collaborating. And this whole concept that one could collaborate across industry, academia, um, was just really something that I was really proud of being a part of over, over my career. But this was different. This was something that I was doing in my lab. This was something I cared about myself. And I wasn't sure that I was, was going to be able to watch it get to the finish line if I outsourced it. And so I felt at the time that I needed to do something besides continuing to pursue this in my lab because I didn't think I would be able to get another company. This is a highly risky research area, new clinical field, hard thing to raise enough money, it's expensive. And so the combination of realizing I wasn't gonna be able to do it in academia and that if I was gonna watch it get done, I better be there to, to, to do it was really what led to the development of Sonoma Biotherapeutics. I absolutely love that uh, idea that taking the risk and putting yourself out there as an entrepreneur and bringing your idea forward is something almost a serendipitous comment really inspired. And it translated to just last summer, you're leading Sonoma to raise $265 million as a Series B. And this summer, Sonoma breaking ground on a new T-Reg R&D and manufacturing center. So I think it goes to goes to demonstrate for everyone listening the power of a comment and a committed mind to carry it through. Can you tell us a little bit more maybe about the Sonoma story? You, you've talked about what led you to get it going, but how did, how did it get off the ground? And can you tell us more about the company today? Sure. Yeah. So I, I, I hope the company um, reflects my own three important North Stars, as you call them at the very beginning. We got to do kick-ass science. We got to translate and we've got to collaborate like hell. And so the company is really built on that, on those three pillars. The first being the science. And we've been very fortunate to not just take advantage of some of the science that was done at UCSF, but really build a strong scientific team who are just totally committed to developing new insights into how T-Regs work. That group is split between South San Francisco and Seattle. Turns out Seattle is a great home for cell therapy, having been really at the inception of the field, started with a Nobel Prize for a bone marrow transplant, the Donald Thomas, but then really some of the first cell therapy companies started up in Seattle, including you know companies like Dendrion and Juno. And so we've been able to bring some really talented cell therapy people into the company up there. And then down in South San Francisco, we've been able to bring a number of great people from UCSF and from small biotechs. And, the, and, and so we have just a great scientific team. But the other thing that has been quite rewarding, and I think it felt like it was going to happen on paper, but seeing it in reality is important, which I've mentioned this idea of collaboration. And what's very different about academia and industry is the reward system is totally skewed towards team and collaborative work in, in industry. Whereas in academia, often you're judged on how many last author papers you've got, how much grants you've raised, how much, you know, how much you've, uh, you've excelled as an individual here. It's all about the team. And I think that that's the second thing that's been really great is being able to build a team culture, a one Sonoma, we call it culture, where people are working together for a common purpose. And then the last piece is sort of making a difference. And, um, and another thing that happens in academia, which is great, and I loved it, you heard about it in my career, which is the idea of serendipity and following your nose and, and being able to say, gosh, this is really an interesting result. 
I'll get another postdoc or graduate student to work on this. In industry, you know, when you raise the amount of money we've raised and you have the investors we have and you have the mission we have, you better be focused on getting something down the field. So the company has really, I think, fulfilled a lot of what I hoped it would. I think now the challenge is going to be always about execution. In companies, you've got to execute and you can't you can't just give up. And so resilience is critical. Not everything's going to work. That's the way science is. But being resilient, being persistent. You know, I mentioned earlier, I had a drug I developed in 1986. It may get approved in a couple of weeks. You know, persistence in our business is really important. And so I'm hoping the company has that ethos and will be able to deliver. Car T-Regs are going to be the future. I'm convinced of that. And we just need to demonstrate that and demonstrate it in, in a way that others believe it. Conviction is so key in entrepreneurship. And it's clear you bring that not only to Sonoma, but the broader uh, CAR T reg and immunoengineering space. It's <laughs> no wonder that it's ballooned so quickly in, in recent years. And as we think about that experience, as we think about that translation, that execution, you've emphasized. In the past, you've sat, or rather, I believe currently, you've sat on the boards of numerous biotech and pharma companies, including Gilead and Prevention Bio, and the scientific advisory boards of numerous other companies. So to pivot slightly and talk about that execution piece and talk about maybe some learnings you brought uh, with that translation of research from academia to industry, how do you think about your role as a board member and company advisor? And maybe what are some of the key learnings that you brought to Sonoma from there? Yeah, I think I think the last point you made uh, is really important, and it's important to emphasize that in in my career, I've been fortunate enough to be on a number of SABs and a couple of board of directors, and I'm I'm always thinking, what can I learn? How is this going to help me be more successful? Uh, early on, the case of the SABs, it was how do I become more accessible in my lab and things that I'm doing in the lab. More recently, in my role at Kiliad, it's um, how do I how do I learn from a larger uh, company about what it's going to take if we move public, when we move public, and how do we build that. And so, over the years, I think that that kind of back and forth education has been really key for me um, on the SAB side. I think I have um, I've, I've been somewhat helpful in helping to identify what I think are the key scientific um, opportunities that exist in the fields of the companies that I've been on the SABs of. It's been quite diverse companies that are um, sort of nuts and bolts, immune therapy companies to companies that are working in other diseases like uh, muscular dystrophy and trying to develop therapies to treat that. And so my hope is, is that I provided even a small amount of, of support as they try to think about how to bring the science into their drug development, how to think about the novel and new therapies that are out there. And at Gilead, I, 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 I sit on the science committee. I love listening to the science. There's so much great science going on in companies, especially a company like Gilead, and thinking about how do you build that into a small, thriving, early startup without getting distracted and now getting without getting out of your lane. And so that's been really helpful in learning that. Prevention was quite unique. So prevention, as I said, I made this antibody a few decades ago to treat autoimmune type 1 diabetes. And it made it, it it made its way through about five different companies. It started with a collaboration with Johnson & Johnson where we made it. And then I already told you that they decided they were getting out of the biologics business. Um, and then through several small companies and finally landed at prevention based on, fortunately for me, having a good relationship with the chief medical officer and convincing them to take it on. But the quid pro quo for that was that I had a, I had to be willing to help them move this drug to the finish line. And so that for me has been, turns out to be also an incredibly important learning experience because the barriers that are there to get a drug, you know, from regulatory challenges to manufacturing challenges, 
to being able to bring uh, an investment community along for it. These are not um, things that I was used to doing. And so that experience has really helped me in learning about all of the, 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 the challenges that occur when you try to take a scientific discovery and really develop it into a, a drug. And so for that, you know, I'm really um, quite uh, thankful to prevention for, for, for giving me that education. So to summarize, you know, each of these, each of these efforts has been something which I've learned a lot. I've, I've gained experience. I've been able hopefully to provide a little help, but at the end of the day, the experiences of one's life are really what determine how you, you move forward in the future. And I hope these experiences will help me in making Sonoma successful. That's a wonderful message. I really appreciate what you had to say about learning from companies at different stages and telling us a little bit more about the story in your work, especially with prevention. And it's clear that over the course of your career, you've had considerable leadership and also impact. And that's including the founding, as you mentioned, some of them earlier, uh, and leading of numerous research organizations to advance our understanding of immunology and bring folks together through the central message of collaboration and therapeutic translation. And of particular note are the Immune Tolerance Network and the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. So starting with the Immune Tolerance Network, you've described it previously as surely one of your proudest accomplishments. Can you share its story with us? Sure. So back in the in the mid nineties, <laughs> I guess it was yeah, I guess it was back in the mid nineties. There was some really seminal scientific discoveries that were made. We talked a little bit about checkpoints and co-stimulation, and um, for the first time, I think that folks at the NIH believed that we might be able to develop new classes of drugs that didn't necessarily, you know. They were much more restricted in their activity. They weren't uh, going to blow up the whole immune response and be sledgehammers. They were going to be more targeted scalpels and brought together a an, ex, an expert panel, which I was on, talking about what we thought some of these opportunities might be. And out of that came the idea of creating a network. And and they <laughs> they had this bold idea, and it really, for the NIH at the time, was quite novel, of giving out a contract. I'll never forget, it was $140 million to build this network. But it wasn't a grant, it was a contract. So you actually had to, first of all, the good news is that, that you would have total control of the money. The challenge was is that you know it was a contract. You had to deliver a certain set of things at the other end. And so I, I because of my collaborative spirit, I was able to bring together a number of really great people and said, let's go in for this together. I'll write it, we'll run, I'll run it, and you guys will help me on a steering committee and we'll execute. And it ended up getting funded. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget, I was at a meeting with Tony Fauci, who um, at the time was head of NIAID and he was uh, in charge of this money. Um, and we were at a meeting and he came up to me and he said, you know, um, I wanna wish you good luck with the, with the contract. He says, I want you to know, and I was reading a paper this morning and there was a um, a spaceship, a ship that was supposed to go to Mars. Um, it was called the Voyager um, and, and it crashed. And that cost $140 million. And you got yours is $140 million. So promise me you're not going to crash and screw it up. And it just turned out to be great. We did some transformational things. I'll give you one example. We had a um, we had a trial in which we, an investigator in London had an idea that maybe we might be able to induce tolerance if we gave the allergen, in this case, peanuts, to newborn infants. At the time, the American Pediatric Association had said, keep kids away from peanuts as long as you can so they don't get allergic. But there was some really important information that suggested that early exposure to antigen might actually drive the immune system towards tolerance. So we ran this trial with 500 kids and went from an incidence of peanut allergy of about 17 or 20% to zero 
it was that impactful. It changed the course of how we think about allergies for babies. We we now are much more focused on getting babies exposed to eggs, to milk, to um, to peanuts and other potential allergens. So it was those kinds of things. We worked with Genentech and took their drug rituximab, which was approved for a cancer therapy and showed that it worked in an, in an autoimmune disease, ankyl-positive vasculitis. And so those kinds of things, being able to change healthcare and stuff is was a, a tremendous sandbox to be able to play in. And, and it's still around to this day. The Immune Tolerance Network is still doing some amazing things because the last thing I would mention about it was we had a commitment from day one that there was no such thing as a failed clinical trial as long as you learn something. And so half of the resources we had were devoted to doing deep scientific discovery in the samples that we would get from the patients. So even if the drug didn't show the efficacy we hoped for, we hope to learn things from those trials that would allow us to do a better trial next time. And that, I think, on a number of occasions has turned out to be quite fruitful. I really love that last point among everything, that last point you mentioned about learning from failure and the incorporation of clinical knowledge and trying again from the from the beginning, but also at the end. I'd be curious actually to hear your thoughts as we think about incorporating clinical expertise earlier on into the research and also how we might be able to better integrate knowledge from clinical trials to improve those uh, that are coming in the future. Yeah, that's such a great question, and it's a really untapped opportunity. I I mentioned earlier on, I'm a PhD, so I never had the ability to have those kind of clinical insights that um, so many of my colleagues had. And so I've been able to partner very often with great clinicians who've really given me input that has so changed the way I think about, about a scientific problem. One of the great things about the ITN was we would have clinical allergists sitting across the table from clinical transplanters, and they were talking about the same immune system, but from so different perspectives. And the clinical perspectives turn out to be so impactful as you're thinking about not just the development of a drug, but how do you think about the, the, the fundamental biology of which the immune system is built upon? And I would say if you know there have been attempts in academia through the clinical trials networks and through the NIH-sponsored CTSAs, but we still need to do better. We need to reward the clinicians and clinical scientists who are willing to participate and we have to reward the scientists. We have to come up with mechanisms to support teamwork across this, this value proposition because, frankly, I think it would accelerate both our understanding of disease and our ability to impact on it. Strong, strong agreement here. I think collaboration, communication are becoming more and more critical, especially as science becomes more and more interdisciplinary. And we're all trying to push forward and help patients. But by the same token, taking that pause for a moment to recognize and converse, even despite all we're juggling, I think will help us take that step forward a little bit faster, just as you say. And so from the Immune Tolerance Network, you served as the Executive Vice Chancellor and Provost at UCSF before transitioning and leading the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy as founding president and CEO from April 2015. Can you tell us more about your experience with PICE? Sure. Again, it was one of these very special opportunities. Sean Parker of Facebook and Napster fame, in an amazing gift, decided that he, he believed in cancer immunotherapy. He believed in cancer cell therapy, in, in cellular therapy to treat cancer, and gave funding to start this institute, which was going to bring together the most accomplished investigators around the country, um, frankly, around the world, to address this, this opportunity for bringing novel immunotherapies to cancer patients. This was really early on. It was 
before the first approved checkpoint inhibitor. It was before the first approved cell therapy. And, and he wanted to really change the way we are thinking about treating cancer. So I was given the opportunity to build out that program. It was a hub and spoke model where we had a half a dozen institutions from Sloan Kettering, MD Anderson, UCSF, UCLA, Penn, and Stanford to really ground the network that we were creating in those institutions. As I say, come together regularly, come up with joint ideas. And then the hub was we had a we built a big bioinformatics group that could actually take samples and data from those sites and help convert that into knowledge. We built a clinical trials network that would be able to build a partnership between a pharmaceutical company and 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 the Parker Institute so that investigators would get access to the drugs they needed to perform innovative trials. We were able to create innovative types of trials where we would have multiple arms that would be able to compare individual and combination therapies. And we were hopefully able to show that that to the community that these kinds of innovative approaches could have an important impact. And, and then others would, like the NIH, which often is a little bit more conservative, that the NIH would then take it on and help to fund larger programs and, and larger larger trials. Again, it still exists today. Sean continues to be incredibly devoted to the space. And I think that there are opportunities that have been developed out of that research, clinical and translational, that that I believe is going to change the way we take advantage of cancer immunotherapies in a wide variety of diseases. It's not bad to have people like, like Carl June involved or others like Jim Allison, who won the Nobel Prize. And we've just had Jed Walchuk, who's now the head of the Cancer Center at Cornell. But just great people are just foundational scientists who understand more about the immune system. They forget more than I know. And uh, it's just great to have that group of people getting together to talk about many of the questions you asked. But imagine having, you know, 100 people answering those questions of what's the future going to look like. And it's just great to have been involved in that group. We're going to pass it back to Chaz to bring us through the last few questions. Uh, so Jeff, before we wrap up for a close here, I uh, would love to ask a few final questions. One that we frequently ask our guests comes from Nobel laureate Dennis Gabor. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? Um, wow, that's a, I struggle with the answer to that question. It sounds very Lamarckian to me. I'm a bit, I'm a bit more Darwin. I, I think that intentionality is really about being in the best position to, to benefit from serendipity and discovery. And so for me, I think that intentionality is about positioning for the best opportunities when they, I've, I've been very opportunistic in my career. I've been able to have really smart people that I work with. And so I continually try to keep an open mind and not be dogmatic. I have had really talented people to collaborate with who bring new things to the table. So I, I would say that for me, intentionality has been the sort of cornerstone of doing things that I know will allow the rare event of, of serendipity to, to find its way into my, my world. Wonderful to hear, Jeff. And I think as we look forward into what this future holds for us, we also could be mindful of the challenges waiting us. What would you say are the grand challenges facing immunology and the translation of our increasing understanding of immune biology to therapeutics? Yeah. So I fully believe that in 20 years, we're going to look back on this these first couple of decades of the 21st century, and it's going to remind us of the turn of the last century when the industrial revolution really changed uh, the world. And this time it's gonna be the biologic revolution. I think that we will have learned more 
about how to understand and treat diseases than the rest of history combined. The challenge is going to be how to implement those strategies. Will we be a world which respects and supports science? Will it be a world where the costs of healthcare are not going to overwhelm the opportunities for drug discovery and implementation? Is it going to be a world where access is a priority and we make sure that not just the richest people in the richest company countries, but people throughout the world can have access to these medicines as they're being um, discovered? The challenges for me are less about the science and the discovery, that those are gonna happen. And I think they're gonna happen at a scale we've never seen before. It's gonna be about implementation. It's gonna be about access of quality and a, a world that wants to take advantage of these in, in inventions and discoveries and doesn't, doesn't focus on you know, the obvious misuse, which is almost certainly gonna come from some of this. Could not agree more, Jeff, that the center of biology awaits us and it's an exciting future here to come. As we build on some of the challenges you mentioned, perhaps we jump forward into realizing this vision. Can you paint a picture of where our immune understanding and immunotherapeutics are going to be in 2050? Where will we be? Yeah, I think that there's going to be depth and breadth. I think the, the breadth is that we are going to appreciate how fundamentally important and in many cases damaging uncontrolled inflammation is in a variety of diseases. And being able to control that from Alzheimer's to Parkinson's to the diseases we talked about today, I think fundamentally treatments of those diseases are gonna depend on having something that modulates inflammation at the same time we're trying to fix the initial problem that caused the disease in the first place. So I think that's the future. Immunology becomes almost a an adjunct to almost every disease. The depth is going to be as we really find at the most or at the earliest level the causes both genetic and environmental in many of these diseases. Our therapies are going to be preventative we're going to be able to get in there earlier, identify who's at risk. We're going to be able to treat disease before it starts. You know, there are very few, other than vaccines, there are very few medications out there that treat people to prevent the disease from happening. That's going to be, that's going to be the dominant way we think about the disease. How do we prevent it from happening? And that's going to require a really fundamental understanding of the disease processes in order, a deep understanding of that. And so I think in 2050, I, I wouldn't be surprised if half the drugs out there are designed to prevent disease from happening instead of once the disease has already happened, or if not fully preventing it, getting in there early enough before the disease has ravaged the tissue or, or organ that it's targeting. And that, that I think will be a profound change because it's going to be a change, not just in, in the science and the translational medicine, but in our, our infrastructure for, for, for healthcare, our cost reimbursements, our, our fundamental ways in which patients before their patients are actually thinking about their health. Let's wrap a bow around this episode for us, Jeff. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our audience here? No, I, it's, it's been a, a great session. I, I really, truly believe that we are at the end of the beginning here, that we really have a chance of changing the human existence with these new medicines that are being created. And I am eternally optimistic that with enough perseverance and and focus and commitment that we will get to a place where we are curing many of the most devastating diseases out there today. We've touched on a lot of fun topics throughout this episode, Jeff. How can our listeners learn more about your work today? Yeah, so certainly I would encourage people to go to www.sonomabio.com learn more about Sonoma Bio. I think there's some very cool stuff going in there. Going to UCSF and learning more about what, what my lab and others in the immunology community 
have done there. And this will be, you can find this throughout the web at various institutions you're at and go to the, go, go to places like the immune tolerance network, org, and uh, learn more about the kinds of things going on there. These are all organizations that are much bigger than me, outlive me, and I think you're doing great things and learning more about what they're doing is going to be a way to get caught up on really the future of immunotherapy. Thank you for an absolutely incredible episode today. We're very grateful for your time, Jeff. Thanks once again for joining us. and look forward to having you back on the show here soon. All right. Nice talking with you. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.